This is Legal Design Podcast, and we are your hosts Nina Toivonen and Henna Tolvanen. We kick off this new season with Dan Riley and JP Rossi from Resolver. They are committed to redefining how legal professionals interact with evidence, navigate complexities, and seek justice with the help of virtual and augmented reality. We talk about how to ensure the safe use of VR in the legal context and how to make sure we still concentrate on the facts and legal issues instead of just admiring who has created the most fancy VR. We also discussed the influence of AI in creating virtual reality solutions for law and justice. How is AI already being used at Resolver? And what kind of possibilities Dan and JP see in using AI as a content creator in the future? Tune in to hear more. I'm Dan Riley. I'm the uh, founder and uh, CEO of a company called Spearhead Interactive. Uh, we've been going since 2013, uh, based on a legacy going back beyond that, another four and a half years in academia. Uh, I graduated with a degree in 3D animation and visual effects from Teesside University and uh, spent four and a half years working at the virtual worlds industry at the forefront of solving commercial business challenges using real-time 3D content. So uh Uh, I got uh, the opportunity to do the whole academic thing and wrote research papers and evaluate different platforms and, and work on live projects, developing uh, essentially metaverses uh, back in 2010. Um, I got made redundant from that position in 2011 and set Spearhead Interactive up in 2013. Uh, and essentially, we're, I guess, one of the founding VR companies, but more real-time 3D technologists. Um, so, yeah, we've been fortunate enough to do about 150 projects now for clients over 30 different sectors across Europe, Asia, and South America. Uh, invested in over 100 pieces of hardware um, and, uh, yeah, been fortunate enough to work on some amazing projects. What we've uh, tried to do as well is... Um, spin out satellite brands within the business that work specifically for different uh, sectors and, and different areas of, of, of uh, commercial application. Uh, Resolver is one of those. Um, it was based on a, which we'll obviously get into a little bit later, a, a court case visualization for a fatal road traffic collision, which was so successful that I decided to spin out a separate company on the back of that. And uh, in the last six months or so, I've uh, been delighted to appoint uh, JP Rossi as, as our CEO. So I think that's probably more than enough for me in terms of an introduction. But uh, yeah, <laughs> your turn, JP. <laughs> okay, perfect. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm JP Rossi. I'm a lawyer uh, and graduated in Buenos Aires, Argentina, South America. And I was living in Europe, in Netherlands for like eight years. And there I finished my master in technology and law. And then I started to focus on legal design field. Uh, I started to make some um, in, in trainings with Tessa Manuelo. That's uh, it's in Legal Creatives uh, Academy. It's a very important academy. And now I'm a certified legal designer. So uh, my function right now is to put in the business uh, Resolve VR as an startup, independent startup under the umbrella of Spearhead to make it, um, to come true of all our dreams. Mm. That's right. Great. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Dan and JP. It's so great to have you. Yeah, and what interesting background stories. Mm. We have learned that our listeners love those the most. <laughs> um. Let's continue. Before we actually jump into case examples of using VR in the legal sector, let's talk a bit about uh, Resolver. Uh, why was it established? Did you have like an initial problem that you wanted to solve or 
what sparked you and what inspired you to start this? Um, as I mentioned, we we delivered a. I guess I'm a serial tech entrepreneur. We, we've developed uh, as part of a number of the solutions. Uh, I mentioned a fatal road traffic collision where um, the it was a three year case that had been going on for about seven million uh, seven million pounds, about eight point four million euros. Um, completing that piece of work and the results uh, from that piece of work were, were so profound um, that it just made sense for us to to look at that as a, a separate offering for the legal industry. Um, so that was really the catalyst for starting Resolver. Um, but we're conscious that uh, even when we spun out that business in 2018, uh, the markets still aren't aware of, of these kinds of technologies or the applications of them. So it's very much a case of uh, us educating those markets on the art of the possible and, um, and driving the the, the uh, adoption of the solutions a little bit further as well, um, which is why, again, bringing JP on as a dedicated resource allows us not only to focus on the visualization for litigation services that we're looking at, uh, but also a much wider range of services. Um, is there some particular case uh, you would like to present us? You, Dan, mentioned about the, um, the traffic accident case that you also presented at the Legal Design Summit in Helsinki. Uh, in uh, last September. Um, and then if you could also maybe tell us about the impact um, that the use of virtual reality has had in those cases. And also perhaps from the viewpoint of access to justice as well, if you can add some um, legal layer on it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I'd be delighted. Um, I think the, the first thing to mention is that um, all we do really is we visualize processes and we visualize data. Uh, and every everything we do in life is a process from putting our socks on in the morning to brain surgery. Uh, and every process generates a certain form of data. Um, so particularly within the legal industry, uh, it's very easy for us to um, take our intellectual capital in terms of visualization, technology, innovation, uh, and designing and developing solutions that, that we've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, and then combining that with a different mindset um, and somebody like JP coming at it from a legal perspective, well, these are the challenges within the legal sector. Well, these are the technologies that we're available with, and then we can craft a range of different solutions um, from there. Uh, and that's why maybe it seems that our services are quite broad and not overly focused on a particular area. It's more that there's so much we can affect with the same process that we go through in creating these solutions um, that it just means that we've got different solutions for different stakeholders across the legal field, whether that's, uh, again, as JP mentioned, UN peacekeepers mm. right the way through to students, jurors, lawyers, um, and, and their clients and customers as well. Um, but going back to the case uh, in point, so the, the we, we've done various little bits and pieces in, in the legal area. Uh, we did a planning permission app for a customer who was um, looking to establish some uh, agricultural um, sheds on, a, on their property. Uh, mm -hmm. and got a, a complaint. Uh, so we were able to, to visualize that and we actually put a virtual camera at the height of the complainant uh, and then <laughs> the ability to, to see exactly what it was going to look like mm. in the landscape um, and make sure that there were no major issues. Um, as far as we're aware, the planning permission on that project was successful at a much faster rate than, than was done previously. Um, so that's one aspect, I guess, to the, the legal thing. But um, the case that really kind of kickstarted everything was this, this fatal road traffic collision up in Scotland. Um, just to give you, I guess, a little bit of background and context on that, it involved a articulated lorry in a delivery van. Uh, the articulated lorry was filled with about 19,000 litres of aviation fuel, making a routine trip from uh, Aberdeen Airport in Scotland. 
uh, and the delivery van was uh, making a, a grocery delivery. Um, he turned into a small estate by accident uh, and turned in back onto the main road. Hmm. And the van driver is obviously aware that they they need to make a, a delivery into this cottage, so was was looking for it. Um, with the lorry driver faced with a slow moving vehicle that was potentially stopping, uh, slowing down to stop, uh, the lorry driver decided to overtake the uh, the van. Uh, at which point that caused a, a minor collision. The uh, delivery driver swung into the um, uh, to the driveway of the the place where they were supposed to deliver to. Uh, at the point that the uh, the lorry was overtaking, so there was a minor collision there. The, the outcomes of which were. Um, that the uh, driver was shaken and unhurt in the delivery van. He was uh, the, the the impact spun the van round anti-clockwise, but unfortunately the articulated lorry driver wasn't so lucky. Uh, the lorry careered off the road, went through a ditch, um, hit a significant ballast driveway after taking out a large amount of hedging, uh, and unfortunately the, the top of the cab was taken off and then the driver lost his life shortly afterwards. Oh. Um, the impact of that... Um, Unfortunately, the the homeowner of the property as well had recently been cutting down trees, so the uh, the load detached from the uh, from the tanker, uh, which rolled over and, and was punctured by the trees, uh, and then obviously spilled aviation fuel out into the local garden and the, the water course as well. So, uh, police Scotland and, and I guess a number of different stakeholders were obviously deal, dealing with a, a fatal uh, collision, uh, as well as obviously environmental disasters as well from mm-hmm. the envir- from the uh, from the aviation fuel as well. Um, the uh, overall um, results of the case was that the van driver was taken to court by Police Scotland on a charge of a death by careless driving, uh, but it was a non-proven verdict resulted, so there was no criminal conviction for the driver in that case. Um, so the case was then handed to the civil sector to sort out the damages. Um, that was split into two areas, the civil case from the tanker company and the civil case of the family of the deceased driver. So um, they brought in a gentleman called Kevin Taylor from a company called KNC Forensics, uh, who did the full forensic investigation. Kevin's a former police officer with uh, years of experience doing these things. And uh, he approached us uh, in, uh, and engaged us to, to visualize the findings of his investigation. So we developed, um, using games engine technology, uh, a reconstruction, essentially using the tachographic data of the um, of, of the vehicles. Um, we used uh, the scan data from the police force. So we converted the laser scan data so it was an accurate, representation of the terrain we put in the tachographic data as i mentioned for the vehicles so they were act- uh, accurately animated um, we put some navigation and animation controls in so you could actually place yourself into the driver positions uh, you could fly around the scene as you wanted to in order to assess it from different areas and we also put a bird's eye camera view in as well um, we also put a witness camera view in too so we were actually able to validate and invalidate not just uh, the dr- the driver's statement for uh, the, the van driver but also the the witness in the in the house who, who said that she'd seen everything um but actually had, had heard a lot of the collision because the trees in her driveway were actually blocking a lot of mm. what could be seen so um, that was a yeah. Good, yeah really interesting finding <laughs> on that yeah, the overall results of the case um, in terms of the, well, I, I guess moving back slightly, there's, there's validation that, that we needed mm-hmm. to do uh, in terms of, because uh, this visualization was submitted to the courts um, mm-hmm. in order to, to, to move things forward. Uh, so the forensic analysis of the tachograph data was used initially to create a timeline of the events. Um, we then created a method statement on the back of that, which was submitted to the courts and outlined how all the elements of the visualization were created. Uh, and then from there, the defense barristers obviously reviewed all the visualization, tested the evidence and, and things like that. And, and no uh, no challenge was made. So that for us was mm. really important um, step forwards within that. Um, but the outcomes for, for the actual case were 
from our perspective, nothing short of, of transformative. Um, despite being prepared to go to court, uh, a settlement for damages was uh, was reached, and that was between 11 to 13 million pounds, so between 9.4 and 11.1 million euros. Um, we were told predominantly based on the reconstruction. The, um, the, the judge reacted very positively to the visualization, um, and the forensic investigators told us that uh, he would have liked to have seen that evidence in the courtroom had it got that far. Mm. Um, really interestingly, prior to our involvement, uh, the case had been going on for three years, an estimated cost of about £7 million, £8.2 million. Euros. The settlement proceedings began within two weeks of us submitting the visualization. So we obviously can't say that what we did was the cause of that, but at the same time, you can understand how being able to see mm. everything and run through different scenarios would allow you to, to mitigate potential challenges that would take up time within the uh, within the court case. Um, the investigators that were involved in the civil case also told us that the outcome in the criminal case may well have been different if we uh, if our visualization had been available, which was just phenomenal feedback mm. uh, in terms of the, the power of what we'd done. Um, with the ultimate goal being obviously to, to bring clarity to the whole inquiry so that all the different parties could see and understand the incident, which would obviously then reduce the, the time and the overall cost. So we did do a virtual reality version of it, which obviously gives you a much more immersive experience, but uh, it was delivered predominantly as a PC application. So you could run it in 3D on a uh, on a, on a monitor uh, and the prosecution and the defense could sit around and, and again, like I say, run through different scenarios and, and test assumptions and do what they need to do in order to uh, to... to solve their arguments i guess between the two of them mm. incredible and yeah this is something like wow effect for the legal profession yeah and from the access to justice point of view if we want to understand it in a more broader sense including also dispute prevention or negative side effects prevention like cost prevention the use of virtual reality really plays a role in it too Absolutely. I think from, from our side, it, it's about, we see the world in 3D, we navigate and communicate in 3D. Uh, by running these visualizations in 3D, we can better understand what's going on within them. Um, and we can better experience them because we're able to control them ourselves because it's a real-time environment. It's not just an animation that we're being seen. We can move around where we want to. We can not change things, but we can uh, we can assess things from different viewpoints and, and get other points of view and perspectives. One of the really interesting things we've done in, in a property environment is uh, doing a disability audit. So we can actually drop the camera height down of the user from six foot one, say, to, to four foot two and extend their, their proximity box to the width of a wheelchair. So we can simulate being a wheelchair user in these environments, or we can adjust the depth of field blur to make the screen blurry to simulate if you're visually impaired. So again, from a, a deeper analysis of witness statements and um, and being able to understand exactly what went on, there's a huge amount of power that can be uh, can be attained from using these kinds of environments. Mm. Hey, um, let's move on and discuss about lost dimensions in virtual real reality and. Um, I think AR and VR technologies are quite new to legal, but they can really revolutionize how evidence is presented in court proceedings. And now I'm going to be the boring person and ask a little stupid question on how do we prevent the court proceedings from turning into the Oscars? or Academy Awards, is there a way to make sure that we still concentrate on the facts and legal issues instead of admiring who has created the most fancy VR? <laughs> I love this question. 
<laughs> JP, do you want to go first on wow. this? Wow, yes, yes, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think um, we need more develop of the justice system for this. Uh, as Dan told you, um, he presented this uh, visualization of accident in a court in yeah. yes, Edinburgh. But I think that uh, we have to wait more for you know, the common use of this. And why? I think because uh, perhaps it's not, uh, it's like the, the legal system is not ready right now for the implementation of this uh, as something usual. You understand what I mean? Yes. It's not, okay. But uh, in the coming years, in the coming years, there's going to be a change of this. Why? Why? Because it's like uh, artificial intelligence. It's like uh, the development of, of technology. It's because, for example, in the pandemia, the people start to use Zoom. And for example, the meetings, the, or the court audience were in, in Zoom environment. So uh, we are starting with these um, projects, for example, our virtual meeting environments that we are developed at Resolve VR. This is important because it's, we want to replace the Zoom with a virtual meeting environment under the umbrella of the virtual reality. You understand? So we don't want to start with the, okay, we want to present the traffic collision right now in the courts and no, no, we started with some services that are going to develop and then we are going to say, okay, this is that the legal system has to use. They have to use, okay, this visualization in all the courts of the world. You understand? Because it's not easy to make it. So perhaps some courts can make it. For example, I, I'm thinking here in South America. I think here in South America is like impossible to present a case like this in in mm. Europe. Yeah. Right now, right now we need more time to develop this. So we are starting with other services to start to say to the community, the legal community, to the legal industry, to the justice system, okay, we are here. We are a company with uh, virtual reality environments to make this. And then we start at like a conversation with the system and say, okay, we can make this. Okay, ah, well, it's like, it's like a step-by-step. Step. That's what we plan it, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think there's a real need for balanced and effective integration of, of visualization technologies as well as VR and AR into immersive and interactive into the legal proceedings. So establishing clear guidance, guidelines and standards, uh, I think it's gonna be really important going forwards um, to define the boundaries. but. For me, I always wonder whether or not it's almost the same arguments you've had going back in time um, when the first animation was brought to the courtroom, when the first TV was brought to the courtroom, when the first lithograph was brought to the courtroom. Uh, exactly. Is this going to transform everything? Is this going to be too theatrical for, for, for the audience? Um, yeah. But I, I think it's about relevance to the case, expert oversight, having judicial control over it, balancing it against traditional evidence. We're not here to uh, to replace anything. It's always about um, understanding how we can add value to the evidence and make it easier to understand and reduce the backlog of cases and enhance the, 
uh, not just from a commercial perspective and um, you know bringing a financial return to to all the parties, but also from an emotional perspective to be able to resolve the case for uh, for a family where you know the the husband the the, the father might have lost their life uh, mm. or did lose their life uh, yeah. in a faster way reduces the emotional impact and uh, and uh, and things like that on the family as well. So there's there's obviously a duty of care that we have when we create these visualizations to make sure we're doing them right. Um, and, and making sure that we're coming at it from both the prosecution and the defense perspective, so there's no bias there. Um, but for us, I think it's about common sense implementation um, and just understanding this technology exists now, and whatever you've got in your head as to what this technology looks like, it's five or ten times more advanced than that already. Yeah. How, how do we yeah, start yeah. to leverage this yeah. and and truly make things much more efficient, particularly when there are, particularly in the UK uh, and in other courts over Europe, such a backlog of cases. And dare I say, as, as we move forward over the next few years with the international incidents that are currently occurring, more of a backlog as well. Um, so, yeah, we, we're very much eager to help and understand the challenges that are around that as well. So uh, and we're not looking to do this on our own in isolation. Uh, for us, again, it's all about how do we build strategic partnerships and uh, and work together to 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 make the world a better place from a, a position of justice. Yeah. About the duty of care you mentioned in preparing virtual reality solutions, are there some quality metrics or other tools to ensure sort of the safe use of virtual reality in the legal contexts, as we know, as we've discussed just um that uh, any audiovisual form of communication like virtual reality, it allows you to see the world from the perspective of another person. Um, how is there a way to ensure that this virtual reality presentation is uh, is um, encoding with real life events or experiences, for example, in forensics? Yeah, I, I think 100%. For, uh, JP, allow me just a quickly answer from, from one side. Um, we can only visualize what we have access to, and, and we'll only visualize what we have access to in terms of the data, whether that's a ballistics report or whether that's CCTV footage that shows where people moved around an area, for example. Mm -hmm. um, there are things we can do to fill in the gaps. Uh, for example, we could color code an individual if we lose sight of them so that you know that at this particular time, we didn't know where they were, for example. Mm. Um, and having that information can be just as important and vital as, as having the information as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, again, it's about how you approach it. it. It's about making sure that you're doing things in the right way for the right reasons. Um, and that you're in communication with people uh, throughout. Um, again, our output is only as good as our input. The same with AI. You only get out the good enough data as, as you kind of put in. So it, it's very much for those specific cases where there's maybe a real public interest or there's a, a corporate manslaughter or something like that, mm. where there's a real, again, duty of care to, to make sure that you, you're looking after the, uh, the individuals that are involved in that. But from a hygiene perspective as well, and the use of the technology in courts and things, there are there are lots of different processes that can be put in place for the use and the management of the uh, of the hardware and, and various other things as well as you move into that kind of realm as well. So there's there's quite a few facets to to talk through when you talk about that kind of stuff. Mm. So, um, it, but yeah, ensuring the accuracy and and the responsible use of of the technology, it's uh, it, it's absolutely crucial. So whether that's, uh, again, with the accuracy of the reproduction and making sure that we're comparing the work that we're doing properly to, to crime scenes using the forensic data, the photographs, expert analysis, that kind of stuff, uh, making sure the, the, the data's uh, it's got full integrity is, uh, associated with it. 
Um, and that's all about our own data pipeline to the back end. But I guess more uh, common um, terminology within your area is like things like uh, chain of custody and uh, and cross-examining and, and validating different areas. Um, that for us and, and having peer reviews, um, I think that for us is also a crucial part of making sure that the, uh, the, the the visualizations that we're supplying, we can't do it all on our own. We need the other side to be uh, to be working with us to, to to validate these things as well and making sure that what we are doing has has the value and has the impact that we expect it to. Yeah. Um, you both already mentioned artificial intelligence, and I guess that's one big uh, cloud in the sky of the storm that's <laughs> that's coming. Um, yes, we and to... apparently we can't do any episodes nowadays without no. mentioning AI. Yeah, hashtag <laughs> AI, it's everywhere. Um, how do you see the threats and possibilities of artificial intelligence in creating uh, VR solutions for legal purposes? Are you already using maybe some AI tech to enhance some of some of, for example, visualizations or something. Yeah, we've um, we, we're we're doing some internal R and D on a number of different areas at the moment that that uh, we're hesitant to talk about just yet, but uh, will likely come to the forefront relatively mm -hmm. soon. But um, I guess some of the the, the possibilities that we're looking at uh, data analysis is obviously the low hanging fruit uh, on there, just mm. with the amount of legal data that AI is able to analyze to case precedents, statutes, legal documents, that kind of stuff that allow us to uh, to, to create comprehensive um, an understanding of a particular area or something like that. Um, evidence integration that could be fully automated. Uh, so we can look at um, forensic data, eyewitness testimonies, and new ways of, of visualizing that and export, uh, putting the expert reports into the, uh, the simulations that we produce as well. Um, there's maybe some uh, narration that we could put on as well that we've thought about. So um, using sort of nat natural language processing in order to, uh, to to narrate exactly what's been going on within the environment. So uh, maybe less technical people are able to understand more technical concepts as they go through the visualization, through the use of, of uh, artificial intelligence and just having uh, conversations. Uh, and just kind of um, enhanced interactivity. I'm hesitant to go down the predictive analytics for case mm -hmm. outcomes route with AI, particularly at this stage. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think that's a conversation that a lot of people will be having and yeah. probably are having already. Um, yeah. How far away are we from um, <laughs> the uh, the minority report future that, that people fear so much? Um, I think the answer is quite far. But uh, at the same time, it, it's certainly interesting to, to have a conversation about these things. But as with all technologies, it, it, the it's what you want to do with them and the impact you want to have with them that that works out whether they're for, for for good or bad but i mean obviously from a threats perspective there's a few things that, that we've thought of as well uh that we need to be aware of and, and the first and i guess the most common and, and uh comprehensive one is just the bias in the data and the yeah. algorithms that, that you could use um if they're trained on biased data sets then you know we need to make sure that you're going well you're going to be perpetuating or, or even potentially exacerbating the existing biases that there are in the legal systems themselves so it's really important to make sure that um we're not skewing our virtual representations of legal scenarios using uh, using the wrong data um we don't obviously want to be over reliant on it either we want to make sure that we're using the actual evidence rather than using artificial intelligence it's great for filling in gaps but we don't want to be doing anything where it's uh this is pretty much what ai thinks happened rather than what actually happened so 
um, on top of the obviously data security, uh, privacy concerns and uh, and things like that. Um, and as well at this stage, I, I think it's great to talk about AI and machine learning and, and dare I say blockchain, particularly when you're talking about chains of custody. Um, but there's cost and accessibility issues that surround that as well. And I think if we're just getting people to, to dip their toe in the water and see the potential for visualizing their cases um, to then add AI and other technologies on top of that uh, might be uh, a little bit too much, particularly from a financial perspective or indeed from an accessibility perspective uh, until we've got kind of an, an ongoing relationship and we've built up um, savings over time, I guess, from, uh, from from putting multiple cases through and, and they see the value and the power of, of what we can do and want to reinvest into, into future technologies as well. Mm. I don't know if there's anything you want to add on uh, on, on AI JP, apart from the fact it's a huge balancing act for us. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, and yes, for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I think like uh, I have like a news preview. This is um, very exclusive for us for our company. Uh, we are working uh, on searching for a um, partner in the Middle East and North Africa region. That uh, I can I cannot mention the name right now, but uh, we are working uh, very hard to make a partnership in that region with a company uh, that we were working in that um, artificial intelligence, and we are going to partner perhaps with them. So we are working on them and the business mm. right now. Mm. Yeah. Hey, um, it's been a great discussion, and now it's time for our last question and i think this question will show what a dinosaur i am as a person and maybe thinking backwards and my ideas might be from the i don't know 15th century or something but let's go ahead um it's safe to say that we have entered into an era of virtual justice um do you think we'll see a future where court proceedings are only virtual and should we worry about that i mean as a legal industry, we've only just now started remembering that there is a real human as an end user of law. And now if we make um, everything virtual, we kind of go backwards and um, miss the human touch and human connection in law. What do you think? It's, it's not exclusive. Uh, uh, all of this is going to be virtual and, and all is going to be in person, something like this. It's, it's in the first yeah. years, I think it's a combination that started, okay, we, we can present uh, some uh, evidence and some forensic evidence in the court. Uh, and then uh, we can make a, okay, a virtual courtroom for some cases, for example, not for the most important cases, uh, for the, um, how can I say, the less money cases, uh, we can make it virtual, yes, because it's, for example, it's cheaper. And the, this is the, the ROI, the return on investment of the justice system there is going to be comparable. Uh, there, so uh, it's like a combination. I think it's it's an evolution too, because yeah. this is going to be an evolution. It's not going okay tomorrow. The virtual courtrooms, no, no, no. We have to evol 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 evolutionize. Okay, sorry, my English. <laughs> evolutionize to uh, uh, this system, but it's a combination. I think the first years are going to be a combination of this. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think from my side, I, I've always tried to describe myself, I guess, as a positive disruptor within different industries and different sectors. And for me, it's crucial to make sure, especially from a legal perspective, that we strike a balance that leverages the benefits of the virtual technologies that we develop, whilst we also safeguard the fundamental principles of the justice system. So 
the integration of virtual elements for us, it's got to be guided by considerations for things like accessibility and fairness and, and the preservation of, of essential human aspects in that legal process. So for me, it's all about hybrid models that, that combine the virtual and the in-person elements. Um, I think initially, mainly because they represent more of a pragmatic approach for the legal system, whilst obviously maintaining its current core values as, as it evolves into more of a uh, an online world. Um, I suppose the, the the benefits for me of moving towards the virtual side of things is accessibility and inclusivity is your biggest one. Um, yeah. Whether it's geographical, physical or financial barriers to attending in-person in hearings, for example, or or something like that, um, you've just made it instantly accessible um, to, to a wide number of people. You're maximizing your efficiency and you're reducing your costs through virtual proceedings um so again physical infrastructure costs and you're also having an environmental impact as well don't forget because you're you're reducing your co2 emissions and all of that kind of stuff as well um there's also flexibility convenience i would imagine as well for um virtual platforms uh like jp mentioned for for, for lawyers and clients to meet together and share documents through a content management system and evidence discovery and, and those kinds of things uh, and being able to collaborate globally as well um it facilitates international collaboration. So it might be that people that have worked on cases similar to yours, but you haven't got a huge amount of experience on, can join you in the virtual representation of that case um, and guide you and help you through that. And, and uh, you can even open it up to the public if you sanitize these cases uh, to a, the appropriate level. Um, dare I use an example like Madeleine McCann, for example, where we can model the the the, the Portuguese villa and, and allow people to navigate around and, and maybe look for clues that weren't spotted or, or find leads for police that, that maybe haven't been uh, haven't been chased up. So there's lots of different things. But from a concern and challenge perspective, um, it's the usual kind of things that we have with a lot of different sectors that could really benefit from adopting this technology at a much deeper level. And I think a lot of that's around the human connection and empathy that people talk about a lot, um, how we, uh, the virtual things just lack the, the nuances of, of human interaction and um, the, also the disparity as well, uh, not potentially having a VR headset or, or those kinds of things might also be a challenge depending on the right context. Um, but I think the biggest one that we're facing right now uh, and, and I'm sure JP will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it, it's the preservation of legal traditions. Um, the legal system is incredibly traditional, and, and rightly so, um, based yeah. on you know, what it yeah, does. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. Um, and I think a complete shift to virtual proceedings is probably going to be met with quite a significant amount of resistance from those that advocate from the preservation of those practices. Um, but we're not here to, to, to take people away or, or remove jobs or anything like that. It's about how do we augment and make things better um and make legal more accessible and, and make things and dare i also say make it a bit more engaging and, and potentially even use the f word uh fun i guess in terms of being able to engage with the justice system um and uh interact and engage with these things in a much better way brilliant thanks for joining us thank it's you guys it's been a pleasure <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast episode with J.P. Rossi and Dan Riley. For more info about the episode, please check our website, legaldesignpodcast.com and our social media channels on Instagram, X and LinkedIn. 